Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So I've, I've assigned everyone a horseman for the... Uh, horseman, four horsemen edition of Rational Security. Because the apocalypse is upon us? Uh, Well. It's nigh. Is it a horse or a horseman? It's a horseman. It's a horseman, yeah. So Shane, you're you're the the four horsemen of the apocalypse, your emoluments. Oh, good. Um, Susan, your tweet storm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Tammy, your furniture shopping. Furniture shopping. Uh, And I'm Putin. (laughs) You know, and you're Putin. I can I just be pestilence or yeah? War? I'm, I want to just commit to the original, the classic four horsemen: famine, death, war. But I think we're really unlikely to suffer <laughs> famine as a result of Trump's <laughs> inauguration. Well, I don't know. When he's done with his anti-globalization agenda, some parts of the globe are going to suffer famine. When, we, may- when we have no more clean water because the EPA doesn't exist. Furniture shopping sounds pleasant. Well, oh, uh, wait. It, oh, it's wait. a bit of a euphemism. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Four Horsemen edition. I am Shane Harris, the Emoluments Horseman of the Wall Street Journal. I have a little bit of a sinus infection, which is why I sound like Lauren Bacall. That was given to you by Pestilence. Yes, Pestilence <laughs> gave me this. Thanks, Pestilence. Pestilence. You could have just taken me furniture shopping, and I probably would have been happy. Pestilence is so last year's horseman. Yeah, it we really are is. the new horseman. I'm suffering. If you're going to get sick, though, this is the week to just go ahead and get it done. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's on so your nice own to hear your voice, out. Susan. I know. I'm back. You're back. Your voice and is my back. Voice your voice has is returned. back. It has returned. It's in full force, and you know you're going to make up for mine. It is ready, We're ready to go. Well, that is Susan Hennessy, of course, and my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, and Ben Wittis. We're here in the Jungle Studio. Hey, hey, Shane. It is Wednesday. Is the apocalypse for... really about to? They arrive? say it's coming. <sighs> Actually, people are of... saying it's coming. One one of the horsemen, uh, the one that makes noise, is low flying helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> well, there will be many low flying helicopters this weekend. So in this actually, case, in there this were ca- two very loud over Brookings earlier today. Oh, we've been hearing them all night at home. It, it, so a friend texts me the other night and he says, "Am I crazy or are you hearing like loud booms in the air?" And I said, "You're not crazy." I think I know what this is. I called a friend who works in the government. I was like, am I nuts or are you guys doing like civil air drills before the inauguration? He said, you're not nuts. And yes, that is what you hear. Uh-huh. You're hearing like sonic booms. Well, we're, we're going to not edit any of them out. Sonic. So if uh, we get flybys of the jungle studio during this taping of Rational Security, you're going to hear yeah. every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the new state. Yeah. Welcome to our new surveillance state. Oh, All right. This week on the show... Last of the Obama administration, and President Obama issues a raft of pardons and commutations on his last days in office. The Trump transition team has barely interacted with its counterparts on the National Security Council. And John Brennan reflects on Donald Trump and his legacy. Well, Brennan's legacy at the CIA. Trump's building a legacy at the CIA, too. Plus a very special object lesson, which we'll get to later. Um, So Tuesday of the last week in office, Obama issues a commutation for Chelsea Manning. 
a pardon for James Cartwright, who had been the source to David Sanger for some reporting he did on the Stuxnet um, cyber attack. Um, I think it should be noted. I think that Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy called, well, you called for, or at least the possibility of a Chelsea Manning commutation. Yeah, so some Susan months I, ago, right? Uh, some months ago. So Susan and I... And explain why this isn't a crazy idea, by the way. Okay, so um, I think, the, the first of all, the president deserves a lot of credit for doing this. Um I think the uh, argument that Chelsea Manning should be pardoned is frivolous. I don't. I don't see why you should pardon somebody who who did what she did. On the other hand, the argument that she uh, was sentenced to uh, a, a disproportionately long term in in thirty five years in prison for leaking uh, strikes me as quite correct and. Moreover, uh, the idea, there were clearly some significant mental health issues involved. And unlike Edward Snowden, uh, Manning is not somebody who uh, fled the country and has refused to face the music for what she did. Um, so the real question is, was, is it appropriate to shorten her sentence to the seven years that she's spent in prison? And uh, Susan and I, I think back in September, right, first made this argument that, you know, no, you shouldn't pardon Edward Snowden, but you should consider commuting Chelsea Manning's sentence to something like time served. And I got to say, we've kind of scratched our head and wondered whether uh, there's any relationship at all between the piece that we ran and um, what happened yesterday. But uh, we don't know. Uh, we certainly, um, we're, we're certainly, you know, not taking credit for it. But um, but it uh, it did take us as much by surprise as anybody else. Yeah. No. I mean, I. Yeah. One of the things that's been interesting is the level of controversy and exactly how it broke down. Um, whenever we had first sort of floated the idea, it really had been born out of conversations about Edward Snowden and um, sort of a, a deeper dive into why the president um, should or shouldn't or more accurately would or would not pardon Snowden and, and sort of in the course of that conversation realizing that actually there was somebody who, who met the the categories that um, both uh, deserved potentially a commutation um, uh, and uh, that Obama might actually consider. Um, you know, the the sort of immediate Republican response was very much anti-Obama, very much kind of a, a knee-jerk. Um, uh, you know, John Cornyn tweeted out, um, uh, you know, first Manning's pardoned, uh, you know, what next, um, uh, like, KSM, and I can't remember who the other person was. Um, so really sort of these, you know, t uh, Paul Ryan called it ridiculous, um, as if it was sort of this grotesque security threat. You know, that to me is, um, it's like it's the national security hawkishness at its worst. Um, so the criminal justice system in general um, does, uh, of course, capture concepts of, of retribution and, um, uh, and long-term deterrence. Um, but national security is really supposed to be about security, right? Are we made safer or less safe by a decision? Um, and the notion that the United States is safer having Chelsea Manning serve an additional 28 years in jail 
I, I think it's really, really hard to justify that claim. Um, and so it really um, centered around what Obama was saying, right? What message was this sending? And it seems as though one community heard this message of, um, you know, Obama saying that it's fine to have leaked or, or our rules aren't fair or, or somehow condoning the behavior. Uh, you know, I think as Ben pointed out, the difference between a commutation and a pardon is you're not condoning the underlying behavior. Um, uh, so just it, it's interesting to see um, uh, which communities captured the nuance, uh, uh, which thought it was uh, actually harmful uh, in terms of the message it sent to future leakers. Um, uh, I've just I, I found that to be sort of interesting and um, and some objections and support in surprising places, at least to me. Well, you know, and, and and there actually what there is a president who has actively condoned um, leaks by WikiLeaks who uh, published the Manning material, but it's not Obama; it's Donald Trump who you know even tweeted free Assange at one point, um, and you know. Susan and I, reckless lefties though we are, would never argue. Bleeding hearts. <laughs> would never argue for, uh, you know, freeing Assange. Um, you know, I just I, saying. Yeah, I I think Susan, the point about deterrence is an interesting one because a lot of the um, negative backlash I've heard from friends who are veterans or current military or other government employees is about deterrence that, you know, they were all socialized to the importance of protecting this national security information. And part of the expectation is that violating that security would be punished severely. And so they worry and they feel as though their own, uh, their own fealty to those requirements has been somehow devalued. That's one reaction. But, you know, I think as someone who was serving in the State Department when this when these WikiLeaks cables, uh, alleged cables, came out um, and had to deal with some of the fallout, I think there's another piece of this that hasn't been much discussed, which is that at the time, it felt like a disastrous exposure of secret information with potentially tremendous consequences. And we can see with the perspective of hindsight that, yes, it it did have, in some cases, quite serious consequences, particularly for individuals who were named in these unredacted cables. Um, but, you know, and I don't want to minimize that at all, but in terms of U.S. interests more broadly, uh, it didn't have devastating effects. Governments who were our friends forgave us. Most of the analysis and and uh, information in the cables uh, appeared to be congruent with what the United States said and did in the public domain. And so it was actually seen as reinforcing, in a way, the consistency and frankness of American foreign policy. And so I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that there was harm done. There was significant harm done, but perhaps not as significant as we feared. Yeah, I mean, there, there are two sort of there are two sort of elements of of the harm done. One is the harm of the actual release, and two was you know clearly Manning's conduct paved the way for Stone, paved the way for later mass leakers. Um, is it fair to uh, uh, lay that all at at Manning's feet? 
in terms of an actual criminal sentence, I, I think that becomes difficult. The, the deterrence question really for me is, you know, the idea that you're going to look at, at sort of the, the case of Chelsea Manning um, and think, oh, well, she only had seven years in a military prison and she got the commutation and that somehow that is going to make someone think that that's the equivalent of getting away with it. That just that doesn't feel right to me. Um, it yeah. seems like a serious consequence. I really agree with that. And one one way that I think you can measure that. So the material that Snowden released is classified at a completely different level than the Manning stuff. It's it's intelligence programmatic material. It's um, And yet, if it were on the table, Snowden returns to the United States, cooperates, and serves seven years, I would take that deal in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think there are probably a lot of people in the intelligence community who, if push came to shove, would take that deal. Probably not in a heartbeat, but uh, but I think at the end of the day, if you if 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 you said is what happened to Chelsea Manning good enough that you would allow it to happen to Edward Snowden? I think a lot of people, in the, you know, after maybe taking drinking a, 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 a little bit of scotch and and uh, and thinking it over overnight would say that'd be a basis on which we could bring uh, Edward Snowden home. Uh, I'd be one of those people, uh, as distasteful as it would be, because I actually think if Edward Snowden came home and got sentenced to 30 years in prison, that would not trouble me over much. Um, But would I take what happened to Manning for Snowden? Yeah, I would. And that suggests to me that it's not too light to act as a uh, th- that it's not too light. Yeah, I mean, the one thing about sort of this, one, you're you're right. I think I think you're you're absolutely right that everybody would have said you know seven years is fine had he leaked the material then come in and pled. Um, I think there's there's um, aggravating conduct right of, of sort of providing aid to the enemy. I mean, there's, there's yeah, no, just, no, I'm, but I'm even saying yeah. even now, if if you if you said to me, no, but uh, I think here's that's the, here's, precisely the point is that. Even now, there are those who would say, no, he has to serve longer because he has done things since the disclosure that were worse. I understand. What Snowden did is much, much worse than what Manning did. And yet, if the question is, you know, did Manning serve too little time, as Susan posed, that she doesn't think that this is – you know, going to come off to people as 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 lacking in deterrent power because it's only seven years. I would say not only do I think she's right about that, I would take that as an answer to the Snowden problem unto this very day. Well, let's continue on the deterrent theme for a second because uh, James Cartwright, former general, Haas Cartwright as he's known, uh, Obama pardoned him and Cartwright had uh, – Revealed classified information to journalists, or at least confirmed classified information to journalists, and lied to the FBI about doing so. Um, He was facing potential prison time. Um, What do we think of the pardon? I mean, I I read this as – I think everyone understands that Cartwright was basically dispatched to go talk to David Sanger about what was in his book and the things he was reporting on Stuxnet and – probably should not have lied to the FBI about what he was doing. But it's, it did seem to me that he was basically the administration's point man on this. And in that sense, you know, you kind of owe him. 
But does this, I mean, is, do we worry about there not being a deterrent value there too? Or is this just a special case? So I think this is a special case in part because Cartwright's prosecution and investigation, it was just very politicized from the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, Cartwright was, and I think, you know, Shane Ewan and Noah Shackman did some of the earliest reporting on this at the Daily Beast. And, and you know, this notion of, of Cartwright as sort of the favored general, potentially um, uh, going above his chain of command and there being sort of a resentment there. Um, look, he was clearly off authorized to have that conversation. Um, uh, he clearly had the conversations with Sanger for the purposes of enhancing national security, right? He wasn't talking to a journalist because it was cool and he wanted to share information. Um, he was trying to convince a journalist to tell the story in a particular way um, that he thought would be least harmful, harmful to national security. Um, so on one hand, um, I do think it, you know, it risks sending the message of, oh, you know, if you're in good with the boss then there aren't consequences or, um, uh, you know, there aren't uh, you know the 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 head guys don't have the same consequences as the little guys, and and you know aligning to the FBI is serious. Um, but I also think that the the risk of not pardoning him um, and of letting that uh, conviction stand um, also has uh, has some level of risks, and that's that you know you ask um, uh, particular designated um, uh, intelligence officials to have conversations with the press. Um, that's a really important part of their jobs um, to ensure that the public is uh, is informed, um, that there are accurate stories, um, and also that harmful information is not coming out. If the message you send to those people is, you know, you uh, we're telling you to go do this, but if you step even a little bit over the line, you're going to face five years in jail and your career is going to be over, that itself is a very consequential message to send to the workforce. Yeah, people are going to say, no, thank you. <laughs> go tell right. them your damn self. Right. <laughs> I also think in the case of, of Cartwright, so I mind the Cartwright case pardon much less than I mind what happened to Petraeus. Um, and I think, you know, to let somebody go through the process and then to pardon them at the end of it uh, strikes me as much more defensible, particularly if the person was in service to you and um, to the extent that he erred, including in, 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 in criminal activity um, to which he pled, uh, you know, it, as as you say, Shane, it really was you know in in the call of 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 duty to Obama, and so Obama kind of owes him something here. It's more like the Scooter Libby thing. It's closer to yeah. the Scooter Libby case. Only when, um, there was no. I don't think there was any malicious intent in anything that Cartwright did. Um, although when you're covering your ass, there's always some degree of self protection Right, but they weren't going out. He, Curry wasn't talking to Sanger in order to, to, to damage someone. Right, he wasn't right. outing a Sanger. <clears throat> they were trying right. to hit somebody. They were trying to get Sanger to write about it in the way they wanted him to write about it. And I also think – I think there's much more political accountability for that. You say he goes through the process and I, the president – Take it on myself to for you know to relieve him of of the consequences of that. That strikes me as a much more honorable and appropriate um, uh, a sequence than when um, the attorney general, as Holder did in the Petraeus case, says. Eh, I think you should only charge him with a misdemeanor for stuff that anybody else in the world would get charged with a felony for. Right. You know, um, that that strikes me as a corruption of the process, and I am sympathetic to um, to the desire to 
um, honor people's service and to take it into account as a mitigating factor. But I don't think it should be taken into account as a mitigating factor at the charging phase. It should be uh, mitigating at the stage of sentencing, maybe, or at the stage of, you know, does the person get a pardon or not? Um, Okay, Uh, let's go on now to our next topic. The Trump transition team have been very busy lately. So busy. All three of them. <laughs> <laughs> so busy that they haven't had a not chance. Not on transitioning the government. No. But busy. On they're doing things. something. Yeah. I don't know. Because they're not meeting with the people who, you know, they're going to get the keys from on Friday and the nuclear codes. And they do know the address of the White House where they need to show up, right? I mean, it's well known. It's, it's the big White House. No, come on. Let, let's be fair. There have been meetings between... <laughs> Trump transition team, National Security Council transition team people, and the outgoing National Security Council staff. But there have been multiple versions of the Trump National Security Council team meeting with uh, with the. That's true. There have been about there have been three, uh, according to Mark Landler's story today in the in the Times, three different transition heads. Right on the on the NSC on the NSC side. So just to be clear. The Trump transition team is a very variable bunch. Some of them, some of the transition teams at the different agencies have been, have gotten very good reviews. Yes. You certainly do not hear uh, problems uh, on the Justice Department side. I've heard they, they, they have good people doing that. CIA uh, seems good. Uh, CIA seems strong. There does seem to be a real problem at, at NSC. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And and a problem at NSC, not just with the turnover of transition heads, but also just putting bodies in seats, you right. know, app- appointments. Finding people to fill those slots. And as we know, I mean, I think that there's there, there was some surprise on the part of the Trump administration, too, that there might have been so many people that they had to replace, although there will be some staffers who are <clears throat> continuing. I mean, in my own reporting with this, what I've, what I've gotten from, from folks is, you know, they don't know who their counterparts are. They haven't sat down and had significant discussions with people. I mean, everything that Mark reports in that story drives with what I've been hearing. And it leaves them with this sense of, well, if you guys aren't meeting with us, then what exactly are you doing and what are you up to? And as Ben says, it's not that there's no activity going on. Um, So then I guess this question for me is, is this a function of Mike Flynn and KT McFarland and not kind of seizing this process? I mean, yes, you have NSC transition leads, but don't we expect that the NSC advisor designate and his deputy would be kind of taking the reins here and leading this? One certainly would hope so. And, you know, we did see KT McFarland uh, in a public way sort of embracing her role as deputy um, by playing the part of the incoming administration in the every every four years or every years passing the baton event at the U.S. Institute of Peace where the outgoing administration and the incoming administration come together and there's actually a symbolic baton that gets passed. Baton. There literally is a baton. It's made of chocolate. But, you know, so that was KT McFarland's first sort of public outing in her new role. And she didn't have a lot to say. Um, they were, and I think partly it's just that they were very, very late getting going on this. Very late. Um, yeah. And so they are still working on on staffing up. But you're right. Even if they're late on staffing up, wouldn't this be a priority for them? And what's interesting, too, is so uh, retired General Kellogg, I gather, is now the third person in charge of this. My understanding is that he is also going to be the executive secretary on the NSC, which is a position that essentially makes sure 
all of the paperwork and everything is moving, you know, logistically as it's supposed to. It's actually a quite important job and requires somebody, you know, who knows what the hell is going on and how the interagency works and legally what their obligations are and what they need to document. If that's the case, it would sort of be, you know, a good sign, I guess, that they're getting back on footing. But I think what's emerging here is that you're going to have agencies within the national security apparatus that might function very well and an interagency that might be a horror show. I think there's two sort of um, – there are. I, I think that's right. Um, I don't know how exactly that's going to play out. Um, so one is sort of the elephant in the room is the person of Mike Flynn. There are a lot of people that would uh, consider working for this administration and on the NSC um, or who are currently uh, in career positions on the NSC or, or designees um, who have serious reservations about working for Michael Flynn yeah. personally. Um, and that's just uh, – if Trump is going to sort of stand by his man on this one, um, they're, they're just – are going to be personal consequences of that. Um, you know, I, I think this is right, of, of right that the, the different agencies are going to be different. Um, one thing that uh, was notable about uh, the Obama NSC in particular, which um, uh, was sort of criticized as being too big, <clears throat> the sort of number of 400 people emerged. I, I'm not sure that's um, it actually was ever 400 people. Um, uh, but this very large NSC and, and um, very much this notion of uh, pushing the agencies to come to interagency consensus, really only wanting to put one uh, one decision on the president's desk, right? This is what your national security community recommends, um, and then allowing the president to sort of evaluate it. Um, and there's very much a sense of sort of gatekeepers and referees and saying, you fight it out amongst yourselves. It's not the job of the president to decide, you know, to, to, uh, to referee this battle between, you know, NSA and CIA, figure it out. Um, if there's not going to be a very strong NSC, um, it's more likely uh, that multiple opinions um, and differences of opinions and non-concurrence of, of opinions are going to come to Donald Trump's desk. Um, and so the way that actually plays out in terms of which agencies he decides he likes, uh, who ends up sort of having his ear, uh, I, I don't know exactly how that's all going to play out. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm curious whether it will work that way in practice, because I could see it working somewhat differently as well, which is that the NSC has two functions. One is to coordinate and and help resolve these interagency debates and differences where they exist. But the other is to provide guidance from the top of the, from the head of the body to the arms and legs that are the implementing agencies. And if that link is not staffed up and operative, then those agencies are gonna, they're gonna operate. They operate every day. They have conversations, they conduct programs, they conduct operations, and they're gonna do them autonomously. And so what you're gonna have is, you know, legs and arms waving in all different directions. <laughs> and the head may not even be aware of all of the activities that are going on. I, I And that's why I think Shane... Shane's prediction of, you know, exacerbating the chaos is far more likely. Now, it may be that when the consequences of that become apparent, then you have the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State marching into the Oval Office saying, no, I did the right thing. No, I did the right thing. Um, but I, I, I don't know that these that there will even be an awareness on the president's part or his chief of staff's part of the need for choosing um, I think if I were the head of one of these executive agencies, I would just try and go about my business as best I could. And I would actually hope not to get guidance from the president. Right. So I think I think there, uh, the, the, the two of you have identified two big elephants in the room 
uh, that I just want to like give a little bit of form to. So one is the possibility that when you don't have a functioning NSC, the authority to make decisions migrates downward to the cabinet to the cabinet level, and that you end up with these. Um, you have to have some means of when Rex Tillerson and assuming he gets confirmed and Jim Mattis disagree about something, or when Mike Pompeo and Admiral Rogers disagree with somebody. You have to have some means of resolving those differences because at the end of the day, the executive branch is a unitary entity, but. It doesn't have to be the NSC and it has been the NSC for the last bunch of years because that's the way we tee up decisions for the president and that's the, the mechanisms that we've set up. But, you know, we all work for an organization except for, except for Shane, um, which has a completely different model, right? Which is that the, so the powers that be at Brookings really are the research vice presidents and the individual scholars. Um, and the, you know, the executive function of the central office is much, much, you know, it, it has much less coordination across, across departments. Most universities are structured that way. You don't have to do it. And, and I really wonder if the result of a, of, of what, um, of building an NSC this week, is uh, actually that the process of interagency uh, deliberation is sec uh, is cabinet secretaries picking up the phone and quietly talking to one another and isolating the executive the head of the executive branch from decision making entirely. That's that that would be a really functional outcome, actually. You know, for the book that I'm working on, I was reading a couple of weeks ago Al Haig's memoir of his brief outing as Reagan's Secretary of State. And, you know, that was a case where he had a bunch of conversations with Reagan before Reagan came into office and just as Reagan took office. And so Haig thought he and the president were on the same page. And he went out and started executing on what he understood to be the president's will. Well, it turned out that that was actually not what Reagan wanted. And Haig only found this out when people within the White House publicly contradicted him or went around him and did things on their own. So picking up the phone and checking in and trying to create your own informal coordinating mechanism, that would be a really functional way of dealing with lack of guidance. But there are other ways that right. it could go. So so I, I'm just I'm 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 saying that one possibility is that you just have power migrating down and other informal mechanisms developing to substitute for what the interagency could be. Now, I think the likelihood of that um, is, uh, you know, debatable. But here's one force that's um, that's pushing that I think may push toward it, which is the point that Susan very delicately made. Let me make it a little bit less delicately. General Flynn is regarded as a nut job and not especially bright by a bunch of his colleagues. Uh, KT McFarlane, um, I, I, I had one, uh, colleague who said to me that he couldn't think of an example of an IQ, uh, gap greater 
between the incumbent member of an office and her successor than the gap that will occur when Avril Haines turns over deputy national security advisor to uh, KT McFarlane. A well, third, without a th- impugning IQ, you can also just I, I say years of government experience. I report right? you decide. Um, I'm telling you what people are what what people are saying. As Trump would say, a lot of people are saying. Um, <laughs> Although there's a bunch of commentary on 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 the high IQ of Avril Haines as anybody yes. else. Uh, Avril Haines extraordinarily high. Avril yes. Haines is an extraordinarily bright woman, and so you can take it as a comment on that, or you can take it as a comment on KT McFarlane, whom I don't know and about whose IQ I personally have nothing to say, or you can take it as both. Um, and then finally, um, you, I think you, you have to ask, you know, I, I've, I've had a, n- a number of conversations in which people say, I can't imagine sitting in an interagency run by these people. And so the question is, how does the interagency respond to that? And do we figure out workaround mechanisms that effectively marginalize the NSC from major national security decision making? Well, so look, at the risk of um, being out of a job, I would I would um, venture that if Brookings was a country, we might not uh, be the most functional uh, right. uh, country in the world, um, although it works quite well for a think tank. Um, well done, executive office. <laughs> um, Look, I, I, and I, I think I think you're right, right? I, the the decisions have to be made. The power has to go somewhere, and and certainly in different areas, um, uh, sort of different iterations will um, will take place, and it'll probably be shaped a lot by people's individual personalities as well. Um, the one thing though that I think is especially true in the national security space is there are lots of decisions that only the president can make, and and there are all kinds of processes in which um, it literally needs the president's signature, and so. But he's um, going on vacation. Right after, exactly. right after the he takes the oath of office, taking the weekend death. off. Right. And so, of course, there's the ability to, for sort of Trump to have Mike Pence as his proxy or somebody, right? Of, of you know the person who puts the thing and they just you know auto pen his signature, you know. But but this notion of that there can just be sort of an absentee leader that doesn't work for everything and the areas in which it's it's really really important signing off on particular types of covert actions, right? Military things. Um, uh, you oh, know, Shane can do that. Interagency, <laughs> you know, interagency cyber operations rules. I mean, there's lots of stuff here that really, it, it does demand the president himself or a very close proxy. Um, that's, I think it starts to become concerning as to um, how exactly those decisions get made. The other thing is, look, um, there will be a learning curve here. Um, the margin of error is very slim. And so uh, the first time they figure out, oh, no, we don't. Uh, it turns out that actually the other guys knew what they were doing and had it set up pretty well. There's actually going to be consequences from whatever mistakes get made in the first three months or six months or year. Um, and so the sooner we can see um, familiar faces, experienced faces, people who know what this space should look like and, and what processes need to be put in place now, um, I think the less likelihood that we're going to see a genuine catastrophe, um, which is is a non-negligible possibility as we sit here right now. Well, let's hope those people get off the supposed blacklist before the shit hits the fan. Um, Okay, my last segment. Um, John Brennan, in an extraordinary interview... Beautifully reported. Who did the interview? For which I may have been present. (laughs) (laughs) What a Um, scoop, man. Yeah, so, well, I have to give some credit to Donald Trump who provided me with the tweet 
uh, Sunday night before this interview, which had been planned for some time uh, with Director Brennan at headquarters, uh, in which Donald Trump personally accused uh, John Brennan of leaking P-Gate or whatever we're calling it, the, uh, right. the, 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 the dossier. Golden Gate. Golden Gate, right. <clears throat> um, personally accused him of doing this, which, you know, offered me the opportunity to say, well, you know, listen, I, I have to ask you. And hey, I'll just read his quote. Here. Was I a leaker of this? No. Uh, I said it's not intelligence community information. <clears throat> Interestingly, we can get back to this in a second, said that it was the Bureau's decision to brief Donald Trump on this. Interesting. He didn't say he didn't support it, but it was he's like, it's the FBI's idea. Um, But then he took that opportunity to go back to President-elect Trump's earlier comments comparing the alleged leaking of this document by the intelligence community, which let's be clear, the intelligence community did not write this document uh, to Nazi Germany uh, and said, uh, I think that there are allegations made when there are allegations made about leaking or about dishonesty or a lack of integrity, that's where I think a line is crossed. He said, tell the families of those 117 CIA officers who are forever memorialized on our wall of honor that their loved ones who gave their lives are akin to Nazis. Tell the CIA officers who are serving in harm's way right now and their families who are worried about them that they are akin to Nazi Germany. I found that to be very repugnant. And I will forever stand up for the integrity and patriotism of my officers who have done much over the years to sacrifice there for the, uh, much over the years to sacrifice for their fellow citizens. Yeah, that was so powerful. And it reminded me instantly that John Brennan's mentor um, in the CIA was Robert Ames, who was the victim of uh, bombing of our facilities in Beirut and died, I think, six weeks before he was due for retirement. Um, and so when Brennan refers to those stars on the wall, that is really, really personal. Those are friends. Yeah. And he, and he was, when he talked about lingering at the wall on his last day at the building, he actually, he did begin to cry. I mean, his eyes welled up and his voice choked and it's, uh, yeah, but it was extraordinary to hear him, um. Right, and I think there's sort of there's there's also like a dot 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 at the end that's that's also rather extraordinary, which is you know these men and women who have risked everything, um, uh, you know, public credit, um, uh, time with their families, uh, uh, other careers, uh, and in some cases their lives. Um, dot dot dot, and you, sir, who have risked nothing for your country you who have you who who are going to take the weekend off so you can hang out um that that you would feel uh, uh the ability to impugn the integrity of these people i, I think that is a moment in which um uh, for somebody sitting at the head of those agencies somebody who, who really does take that stuff um uh, seriously and um uh, you know this is this is a genuine ethos in the intelligence uh, community this isn't just sort of you know flag waving to um, you know, bully people out of genuine objections to to IC conduct. You know, people um, people do know people who who've sacrificed their lives. Um, there's also a real sense of um, of responsibility for those people who get to uh, serve their roles in in safety. Um, that there are other people who who really put their uh, you know uh, put their necks on the line for it, and that that's um, that's a big part of the obligation of people who who don't necessarily uh, put themselves in harm's way. Um, so, like, I mean, I think it just it, it speaks to yet another absolutely extraordinary moment in in the evolution of the relationship between Donald Trump and and his intelligence community. Um, I also think that we're seeing um, a little bit of a shift in in the outgoing Obama administration this week. Um, So I noticed that a lot- I noticed that a lot of uh, of outgoing um, uh, 
you know, officials um, have started to set up private Twitter accounts. Um, so <laughs> Samantha Power in urging her uh, her followers to uh, move from Ambassador Power to Samantha J. Power um, literally said, we will not go quietly into the night. Um, <laughs> I saw another uh, press secretary at the White House saying, um, January 20th, the chains come off. Um, you know, you see them, all, they're all setting up their personal accounts. It, it really feels like this this team is sort of rallying of, hey, and, you know, we served this we served this country um, these past eight years, and, and now we're getting into a different role. And, and I think hearing people like Brennan um, uh, really start to, to move into these very powerful, um, very loud and, and emotional defenses, um, I think that is a little bit um, of a glimpse of what's to come in terms of uh, the pushback uh, that former Ab- Obama administration officials um, uh might be uh, presenting to their counterparts. Um, so yeah, that's I, a really interesting idea. And I worry a little bit that there's a tension between the first thing you said, Susan, and the second, because um, the difference between Samantha Power, or Ben Rhodes, you know, gearing up a personal Twitter account, and John Brennan is that John Brennan was a career government official. He was a career intelligence officer. And he rose to this level where he became a political appointee. But when he speaks to this issue, he speaks with all the authority of a career spent in nonpartisan government service. And, you know, on the one hand, we can all sort of say it's great. We're not going to have to wait for the memoirs to get published and we can get this stuff right away. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I it takes me back to a conversation we had over the course of the campaign about the role of retired military officers in the political contest. And, you know, is there a broader undermining of the integrity of nonpartisan public service in government in uniform, out of uniform, that happens when somebody who came up the way John Brennan came up you know, we think might come out and be a very outspoken, politicized critic. Yeah. And I, I think there's actually somebody in this conversation who deserves a shout out at this point, And that's George W. Bush, who came out of office and in a highly partisan environment in which people, uh, including his vice president, Dick Cheney, were really savaging Obama he refused to talk in a negative way or really at all about the incumbent president and actually, you know, when asked, said, I think he's entitled to my silence. Um, and, you know, I think everybody in this conversation uh, has, you know, it depends. I, I think Tamara's point that it depends who you are matters a lot. You know, if you're a political apparatchik or somebody at a staff level who's got a lot of things to say that you've had to suppress, God bless, go out there and say what you think, you know, be cut loose. But there are these people whose stature involves a certain, uh, ins- you know, what Brennan said was powerful because he's not a political apparatchik and because when he says, you know, I'm speaking for, um, you know, the people who whose, you know, stars are on that wall, um, he actually is. And, um, you know, and that's why it's partly why it's different when John McCain says something than when some other people say something because you know there are certain things John McCain won't say. 
And so, you know, I do think that there's there's as you have this great migration of people's accounts to private Twitter accounts to, you know, that's actually not a call for everybody to turn into at real Donald Trump. Right. And there's there's something valuable about the voices of people whose, you know, voices retain, uh, you know, cr- credibility and moral seriousness because because of who they are and the positions that they've occupied and the dignity with which they've served in them. Well, and maybe there's also something about um, it's more effective if you hold your fire until it really matters. President Obama gave a final news conference uh, this week and said that, um, he, you know, it's perhaps in in reference, conscious or unconscious, to George W. Bush's practice, said you know that he's not going to comment on President Trump uh, or the or the incoming administration unless he sees real discrimination or something like that. You know, so he reserved the right to break the silence of the ex president's club, um, and that too is is new and different. Right. So look, I, I completely agree that, that people need to maintain and retain their credibility. And, and that's going to be really important moving forward. Um, I, I also think that um, this is not the transition between Bush and Obama. This is not like anything we've ever seen before. Um, uh, the person who is rising to the presidency, the people who are occupying offices, um, there is genuine reason to have grave concerns um, uh, and, and concerns about, you know, that um, uh, are as extreme as as sort of the the survival of the republic and sort of in its most i don't know hysterical manifestations but but let's face it um uh we've never seen a president talk like this um we've never seen uh uh you know a, a disregard of ethics rules um uh the way we have um uh, the cloud of of compromise is hanging over this administration dossier unverified or otherwise um and so uh, i do think that um I think that uh, this is a unique moment, um, and it's one in which people who are used to playing by the rules and playing by those sort of, um, uh, you know, other people being entitled to your silence uh, may uh, need to break with tradition uh, because this is just such an extraordinary situation. I will just point out that Samantha Power, who once called Hillary Clinton a monster, has never played by the rules, mm-hmm. and I would fur- and I would further point out that to the extent that more people, uh, m- that more people are less disciplined in the way they talk, they will be less effective. I suspect, and that the power of what Brennan said comes from the fact that there's a certain discipline in the way he conducts himself. Do you, Shane, did you get a sense that this is the first of a series of tell-all interviews? Or? I don't know. I mean, he'll did do a memoir, I would imagine. Why not? Uh, <clears throat> and uh, he has talked publicly about wanting to write. He's actually said he's interested in writing fiction, which is interesting. He I think you should write for Lawfare. And <laughs> you if, might want to write for and Lawfare. And if you're listening to this, Director Brennan, and you have stuff that you want to say on Lawfare, I you should get in touch and uh, we should, uh, you know, I, we're, our platform is open to you. <clears throat> it wouldn't surprise me if he did. It also wouldn't surprise me if he just, you know, went to sleep for six months and, as he put it, uh, reintroduced myself to my family. So, but look, there's a role for you know the Mike Haydens of the world and others to come out and to be, 
you know, gray beards and to comment on these things. And uh, we'll see. I mean, here's does the world have room for gray beards beard. anymore? I don't know. I mean, he doesn't really have a beard. He has yeah, you got to grow a beard skin. if you want to be a gray beard. Well, Michael Hayden doesn't have a beard. Yeah. No, he's not a gray beard. Well, an eminence grease. <laughs> he's an eminence grease. All right. <laughs> uh, well, here's hoping he keeps the quotes coming. <laughs> um, let's move on to object lessons. We have a special object lesson this week. We're going to each talk about what we are doing for the big day, the inauguration. Uh, tomorrow, how will you be spending January 20th? I will be spending January 20th on the beach in Miami. Oh, with the Obamas? <laughs> Is that where they're going? They're going, they're going to Palm, Palm Springs. Palm, oh, Palm Springs. thank you. No, I think they're going to West Palm Beach. I thought Palm Springs was going to Oh, Palm Springs. No, but okay. we'll, be, we'll be there a day before. As long they as they're not going to Miami because I want to have a peaceful vacation <laughs> uninterrupted by any thoughts of what's happening up here inside Donald the Beltway. Donald Trump may be back down in Miami. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I started taking salsa bachata lessons. So maybe I'll get a chance mm-hmm, to practice mm-hmm. my salsa while okay. I'm down there. But nice. uh, that's... That's my plan, and I figure, you know, the struggle will be here when I get back to Washington yeah, next week. It'll be here. Ben, I, I presume that you're, uh, you've been invited to go on this trip? I uh, actually did the invitation myself. Oh. Um, he spearheaded. Um, he masterminded. Nice. It's part of the, the lawfare continuity of operations plan. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that if anything happens to Susan and <laughs> the last <laughs> radius, as they say. <laughs> There'll be one of us. <laughs> ben will have the nuclear football in Miami. Uh, I am launching on uh, January 20th uh, a new Twitter uh, initiative. Uh, hashtag notes from under Trump, um, and um, can be taken so many ways. Notes, notes from well, it's with apologies to Fyodor Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky. Um, and notes from under Trump uh, is going to be one tweet a day for as long as the Russophile cabal uh, remains in in office. Uh, they will be numbered um, and. So please, uh, starting, um, starting. Well, t- I guess the first one is is announcing it is tomorrow. So please check out uh, 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 hashtag notes from under Trump. Uh, and Are you going to make your own separate account for that? Or you're no, gonna no, no, no. It it's going to be from Benjamin Wittes. Um, and the Daily idea brief, is, you, you know, I think it was Mencken who said that the the ultimate role of journalists was to. Uh, uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm-hmm. And this is really more in the – most journalists think about the second half of that sentence as their job. Uh, this is about the first half. This is just, uh, you know, 1,300 if he's one term, 2,600 tweets if he's two terms uh, to, uh, you know, uh, help people emotionally and – um so uh, enjoy it. And if you have things, if you want to respond, uh, um, by all means, uh, use the hashtag as well. Susan? So I have been struggling with what to do during the inauguration. My first instinct was to um, run for the hills or a beach or somewhere else um, and just get out of town. It's hard not to feel like it's the city's not being a little bit um, infected. Um, but over the past week, um, I uh, have changed my mind. I'm going to stay here in D.C. Um, in part because I was here first and uh, – I'm not going to uh, be run out of town by this man. Um, So actually, my neighbors, uh, we actually live on the hill um, 
along the uh, routes to come into the inauguration. Um, and so all of our neighbors have gotten together um, and printed out uh, various Martin Luther King quotes that they are displaying in their yards to remind the people who are visiting uh, this city to celebrate Trump's inauguration um, what we stand for and what we don't. Um, so I'm going to uh, uh, stay here for that um, and then attend the Women's March on uh, on Saturday. Um I don't exactly know what I'm marching for, and I, I think I, a lot of people have struggled to understand what exactly this march is supposed to be about and whether or not they have a role in it. Um, for me, I just um, want to be a body who is counted um, as somebody who is cares enough to, to show up and, and to say, I'm watching and I care about these things. And um, yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and sort of muster up some... Uh, civic pride. Uh, my sister and her wife are coming into town, so um, uh, we'll also have sort of a, a sister's bonding uh, uh, weekend. And uh, yeah, we're going to huddle together to uh, to await the, uh, the dawn apocalypse. Or, or lack thereof. <laughs> Party uh, on. There you go. Uh, well, I will work in the morning. Uh, I will not be at the event, although colleagues of mine will be down there, <clears throat> but I'll be watching the speech and We'll be posting any live reactions to anything that, you know, national security consequence or policy. Um, but for the most part, I think I'm going to watch the speech. <clears throat> and then uh, uh, later that night, we are having, we're having a party. We're having a dinner party for our friend Tim Neftali, who's in town, uh, who is the, I would say, probably the leading scholar on Richard Nixon, uh, largely Timely. responsible for a credible Watergate exhibit existing at the Nixon Library, where he was the first uh, librarian not appointed by the Nixon family. Uh, he didn't last long in that role. He didn't want to say, but he made quite a difference. He sure did. Uh, Roger Stone does not like him at all. Uh, so we'll be having about uh, a bunch of our friends over for that, and uh, kind of honoring Tim, and uh, we'll be asking him to tell us tales of Nixon Yore, I'm sure, and you know, possibly equate it to our current situation. He may have some views on that, but yeah, we're gonna make a big pot of beef bourguignon and drink a lot of wine. Ah, yummy. Enjoy. But we will be here next week. Yeah. To be in it together. For the post-apocalypse edition. <laughs> if we all make it. For the unto the breach edition. Yes. Yeah. Every rational security will hereforth be known. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You, of course, can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Rate us. You can follow rate us. us ra rate, rate us. us. Always rate us. You know the drill. If you're listening to this for the first time and you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So you should, when the podcast is over, go give it a five-star review and, and uh, a rating. We would really appreciate it. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Watch for Ben's... Uh, notes, what was it? Notes from under Trump? Notes from under Trump. It sounds dirty. Yeah. Well, it's supposed to sound Dude. a little dirty. Well, watch for those. It's all about furniture shopping. <laughs> and it's about Dostoevsky. It's going to be the euphemism episode. <laughs> uh, our audio engineer is Quentin Jurassic. Our show is edited and produced by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by John Brennan and the Angry Irishman. <laughs> if he had a band, that's what it'd be called. Oh, definitely. They would like to like speed metal on acoustic guitars. Yeah, like, in an I Irish could see bar. him doing I think it might be too. John Brennan and the Knox. Oh, and the Knox. Oh, I like mm -hmm. that. <clears throat> that's even better. Uh, no, of course, our uh, music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, who may be in an undisclosed location <laughs> for the next few days. Taking political asylum. Yeah, take it easy out there. Take care. Uh, so, on behalf of my good friends Mark Hoffman Wittis and Ben Wittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you on the other side. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.